thank God for His goodness. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Acts chapter number 25. You can be seated. Acts chapter number 20. Actually, Acts chapter number 26. And look at verse number 12. Acts 26, verse number 12. Actually, our text and the scene that is before us here stretches back into chapter number 25. But we're going to summarize and, and kind of put that together with these verses. Acts chapter 26 and verse number 12. So let me give you the background. Earlier in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, to show goodwill to the Jews of Jerusalem, he made himself... Uh, he, he made his way back down to the city of Jerusalem. Of course, the Apostle Paul was very much a missionary going into those Macedonian countries and, and, uh, and the Gentile lands spreading the gospel. And he made his way down uh, into Jerusalem to go to worship uh, during the Holy Week, during the, the time of, uh, of Yom Kippur, sacrifice and all of those uh, a spiritual time of worship. So Paul is making his way. He had he had taken a vow uh, uh, of uh, of a kind of uh, uh, just uh, to set himself apart. Let's just put it that way. A vow, and he had had a couple of other uh, young Christians go with him, and he went down to the temple for to worship uh, with his brethren, the Jews. And as he goes down in there, he is accused of bringing. Gentiles, remember he was an apostle to the Gentiles, he was known for his ministering to the Gentiles when it was mistakenly, he was mistakenly accused of bringing Gentiles into a place they did not belong as far as the Jewish, uh, the Jewish law. Well, it was fictitious, it was wrong, but Paul was caught in the middle of a riot and basically was being torn apart. The Romans at the time, overall, wanted to make keep the peace. And so they arrested Paul since he was at the center of this controversy until they could find out what was going on. And uh, uh, so he was arrested. The Jews are making accusation against him that he had done something wrong. He had broken their law, which he did not. So Paul is in prison, and there is a plot to take his life by the Jews. The Jews were going to try to kill him as he is in prison. Well... They get wind of this and they transfer him to Caesarea, uh, to a place outside, near the coast on the Mediterranean, and there to imprison him until they can figure out the charges against him. So while he is there, a man named Festus, he was a Roman leader, a Roman governor at the time, began to question him about basically agreeing with the Jews' call, uh, uh, charges and just kind of having the charges dropped or whatever. But Paul wouldn't do it. He he, he was a Roman citizen and he was arrested without charge. And so he is appealing to Caesar. So it's just a political mess is what it is. And so he is appealing to Caesar to have his case heard before Caesar. But for him to do that, Festus has to write up what the charges are. What is the problem here? And explain that in a letter to Caesar. So he goes down and he's trying to talk to Paul and Paul's not making any sense. He's a Roman, he's steeped in idolatry. He can't understand what Paul's trying to tell him. So he, he gets King Agrippa, the king of the Jews, who should know some of the culture, some of the things that surround the Jews and be able to explain them to Festus so he can write this letter, so he can send Paul on his way. So he invites Agrippa down 
to hear Paul's testimony. And so that's where we are. We're in a court scene. Paul is making his appeal to both Festus and Caesar to explain himself and what took place not only there, but what has taken place in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul's going to turn it into a testimony service. He's going to turn it into a gospel preaching moment no matter where he is. And so he's standing before them and he's giving them this, uh, this series of, of events and he tells them of how he was converted on the road to Damascus. When we pick up reading in our text, he had just told them that he had been converted on the road to Damascus and that God had sent him to be able to preach to the Gentiles, okay? So we pick up reading in verse number 12. He said in chapter 26, verse 12, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with the authorities and commission of the chief priests at midday, or he's going to, here's going to tell the testimony, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, and I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But arise, and stand upon thy feet, and I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both to these things which thou seen, and those things in which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Here's the Apostle Paul. He picks up now in his defense and he's speaking to Agrippa. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but I showed a first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. So he's explaining what happened in the temple. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I also, I also I speak freely. And I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know thou believest. Listen to this. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice and they that sat with them 
And when they were gone aside, they talked together among themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or bonds. Then said Agrippa to Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. I want to talk to you on this subject this morning, taking my thoughts from verse number 28, where Agrippa said, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I want to talk to you about the tragedy of an almost Christian. The tragedy of an almost Christian. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes the Word of God and works in our hearts. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign this morning with the hearts and lives of those that are in this room. And God, I pray that you would search our hearts. God, that you would show us our need of a Savior. Show us our condition before you. Whether we be lost, whether we be saved, whether we be saved and be far from you. God, you would take the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and you would either bring us to faith in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in Him or you would draw us back into that relationship in which we ought to be with the Lord. Whatever the case may be, Father, whether it, whether it give us a burden for those that are outside of us, that may claim, that may claim a gospel, that may, they may claim to be saved, but God, they are far from it. God, I pray you give us a burden to even pray more earnestly for the blinders to be opened from their eyes and they would come to know the truth in Jesus Christ, the saving gospel in Him. God, just do your heart work among us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. And amen. We are a nation that marks more of its history by its tragedies than it does its triumphs. I don't know if there are many in here, but there was a period of time in history, I, I just read yesterday, where the last remaining survivor of Pearl Harbor recently passed away. The last one that was on, I believe it was the Arizona or one of those ships, he passed away the other day as as a soldier, but we're losing very many. But there are some that if you were alive at that time, you probably know where you were when, when Pearl Harbor took place. Or maybe when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And more recently, more generally among us, we could probably tell you where we were when the events of 9-11 took place. Or, or, and, and we, mark those, we mark our time more by its tragedies than anything else. You know, the Bible is no stranger to tragedies. If you read the Bible, you will find horrible tragedies in the Bible. You take, for example, the people of God, Israel. They are a tragedy. Do you remember God's purpose and plan for the children of Israel when He brought them up out of Egypt? He was going to take them to a land filled with milk and honey. That was one of the jokes on our trip is we're all, we're all supposed to be looking for milk and honey and we're just not seeing it anywhere. But God had promised them, the Israeli people, that he was going to bring them to a plenteous land, a land of milk and honey, a land of, of prosperity. And do you remember how it went, how that he led them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day, or a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day? And they got all the way to the borderland of Canaan, to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And it was there that they balked at God that they did not trust Him. And even though they were right on the edge of God's promised land, they turned back into the wilderness 
and spent the next 40 years wandering. It's a tragedy that they did not take the lamb. You remember the story of Lot's wife? How that Lot and his wife were in that wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah and how that God was going to judge that city? And he sent his angels down there uh, to retrieve Lot. Abraham earnestly prayed for the city that it be spared, uh, but to no avail. God was going to judge the city. And he went down, and these angels uh, got Lot and his wife and his family and was retrieving them out of the city. You remember the tragedy, how that they're almost to the city limits. They're almost out of the, out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Lot's wife turned back and Whatever the meaning of it is in Scripture, the Scripture tells us clearly that she was turned into a a pillar of salt. She was right there on the edge of safety. What a tragedy. What about Abner? You may not know Abner's story as well as maybe Lot or the children of Israel, but his story's a tragedy. Abner, in the the book, I think, of 2 Samuel, he he had been forgiven. Abner was a was a general of Saul and a bitter enemy of David. Matter of fact, he participated in trying to kill David. But years down the road, when David became king, Abner made peace with David. And he received the king's forgiveness for his crimes. But although David forgave him, Joab did not. Joab was the general of David, and he had it out for Abner. Abner was almost to the city of Hebron. Hebron was one of those cities called a city of refuge, a, a place where if you, were, uh, if you had a controversy and the, and the avenger of blood was after you, you could go to that city and it would be sorted out by the high priest and, and you could be preserved from being killed and given a death sentence. But just outside the city, Joab tracked him down and brought, and brought Abner aside. And even though David had forgiven Abner, and, and Joab is in the wrong doing this. He killed Abner right outside the gates of Hebron where he would have been saved. What a tragedy. There's tragedies in the New Testament as well. You remember the story, I believe it's in Mark's gospel, where the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus wanting to know how to have eternal life. The scripture even goes out of its way to say, and when Jesus saw him, he loved him. And then he told him exactly how to be saved he even told him thou art not far from the kingdom of God he told him what he must do is to is to you know he told him initially you know to keep the law and uh, and to observe the prophets to keep the law and this young man said yes I've done all that and Jesus seeing the sin in his heart says then sell all you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me and the man walked away why because the covetousness of his heart The sin he was blind to kept him from the kingdom of God. What a tragedy to be that close talking to Jesus. Jesus telling you how to be saved. Telling you you're not far from being saved. And then all of a sudden to turn and walk away. I believe this to be the greatest tragedy of all. To hear the gospel message of God's saving grace to tremble under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and yet at the last turn and walk away from Christ and never be saved. The greatest tragedy that can happen in the life of a person is to almost be a Christian. To almost be a Christian and yet to be altogether lost. 
Here in the case of King Agrippa in our text, he puts on full display before us that just that kind of tragedy. Every person here this morning uh, can avoid becoming the greatest of all tragedies and almost Christian by understanding three truths that, that make up this tragedy. I want to look at it from three vantage points and, and see this tragedy and learn from it. Number one, I want you to see first of all, when we look on this scene, we see first and foremost the renown of self. The renown of self. Going back to previous chapters, remember I told you that, that uh, Festus kind of wanted to work things out with Paul and maybe just kind of let him out on the sly, uh, let him go. And now that he's out of Jerusalem and everything's been diffused, just to kind of... But no, Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. Paul wanted to stand before Caesar and to do exactly what he does here, to give his testimony and preach the gospel to the most powerful emperor in all the earth. So he appeals to Caesar, and finally Festus says, okay then, off with you, you can go to Caesar. But again, there's this problem. He had to send letters with Paul describing the charges that are against him. And Festus really didn't understand them. That's why he brought King Agrippa, the king of the Jews, in. Agrippa was the king, and he could better outline the dilemma here of what he's being charged with. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. On my recent uh, journey into the Holy Land that I, I am so grateful for and thankful for this church helping me out, but you would, I mean, there were places everywhere from the northern part we were at in Israel to the southern part near the Dead Sea. It was marked by places that had been built by King Herod. He was an amazing builder, an amazing engineer, and he built things all over that world. He was, a, he was indeed the great uh, uh, King Herod the Great. But his grandson is this Agrippa here. And notice he is also his great... He is Grip, Agrippa here is the grandson of the Herod that killed John the Baptist. And he is the son of the Herod that killed the disciple James and because of his pride was struck by God with worms. So you can see a lineage here. Here is Agrippa. He is the great, great, he is the great grandson of King Herod. And all he has known all his life is that regency, that, that position of royalty all his life. What a family tree he had. Rich with self-arrogance, self-importance, and pride. Well, the apple does not fall far from the tree when it comes to Agrippa. Notice, first of all, we see a high position. A high position. This man was the king of the Jews. One that not ascended, one could not ascend to a higher position outside the Roman governor. He was a man to which the mightiest of soldiers snapped to attention when he entered the room. He was a man who was catered to by his every whim. He was a national figure. He was a man of power and fame. He was a man that, that looked, up to, uh, looked up to no one and everyone looked up to him. And he sat on a throne and ruled by his sovereign will. You know, in reality... Every one of us in, the, in our heart of hearts has just such a king. 
one that wields absolute authority over what he does or what she does, what he does, what they do or don't do. It is because of this high-minded position, human hearts become the scenes of a tragic, almost Christianity. Festus said in verse 24 that Paul was mad, that he was crazy. If indeed Paul was, if, if indeed what Paul was saying was penetrating the heart of Agrippa, he no doubt would have thought, as, as Festus said to Paul and charged him with madness, he would have no doubt said, What would Festus think if I became a Christian? See, we don't know the tone at which verse 28 is given. We don't know the tone in which he says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You see, it could have been derision. (laughs) Almost, almost, are you trying to make me a Christian, Paul? Or could he have been saying, Almost. You're almost convincing me, Paul. But regardless of which one it was, if indeed the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, there would have no doubt been the question, what will people think if I become a Christian? Harry Ironside was a great preacher of a bygone day. He was the pastor of Moody Church in the 1950s. When Harry Ironside was just a young boy and not a Christian, his mother used to talk to him about about believing on Jesus and being a Christian. And Harry Ironside would say to his mother, Well, mother, I would like to do it, but I'm afraid that my friends will laugh at me if I do. His mother would always say to him, Remember, Harry, your friends may laugh you into hell, but they can never laugh you out of hell. If you're worried about what will be thought of you, if you throw in with Jesus and you you put your faith and trust in Him and you, you have that radical change of life that accompanies the new birth, if you're worried about what people will think of you, take Harry Ironside's mother's words of wisdom to heart. They may laugh you into hell, but they'll never laugh you out of hell. But Agrippa already had things against him. His high position, the position that he had always known of royalty and everyone being subject to him, it's, it's, it's the complete opposite of what Christianity is. And it, and it goes against our, our position. Notice also not only high position, but a haughty pride. You know, position and pride seem to go hand in hand. Rare is the time when you find one that is of a lofty position and yet maintains a humble spirit. But newspapers are filled with stories of those who thought their position entitled them to special privilege. Verse 23, uh, verse, uh, 23 of, uh, of chapter 26 says that Christ should suffer and that she, he should be the first that should rise from the dead and, sh, uh, and show light unto the Gentiles of the people. No, wait a minute. First, not, not verse uh, third, uh, 23. It says, ah, in verse number, and maybe the previous chapter. Yes, yes, and on the morrow, 
Look at 25, 23. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the palace, hearing with the chief captains and the principal men at Fester's commandment, Paul was brought forth. You can, can, you, can you see this now? This King Agrippa coming in with Bernice on his arm. You can see their long flowing robes. Great pomp. The word pomp here is a word from which we get our word fantasy. It is a, it's to appear great. A great and vain show. Can you see everybody standing in attention as the trumpets blast and Agrippa, King Agrippa enters the room? The soldiers stand at attention. Can you see their glittering robes and, their, and the bright gold of their crowns on their head? And then there's Paul. Paul is brought forth. Can you see his eyes squint as he comes into the light of the room. He'd been held in captive in the prison in darkness for weeks at a time. A sharp contrast from the prison cell. Look at Paul's clothes, musty and worn. His face weathered with age and exposure. Can you hear his chains rattle and scrape across the floor as he enters the room? Agrippa and his pride looks at Paul me? Be like you? Are you serious, Paul? You want me to be a Christian? To be the butt of every joke? The target of every lash? Me exchange my chains of gold for chains of iron? Paul, are you crazy? There's no way I would do that. Romans 2.5 Listen to this. The Apostle Paul explaining the condemnation of both Jews and Gentiles says it bluntly. Romans 2.5 But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Pride keeps so many people from coming to Christ. It is the haughty pride of Agrippa that turned him into a tragedy. Mark 8, 36, Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What makes this a tragedy is that his pride, his position, what he walks into the room with keeps him in the, in the confines of being a tragedy of an almost Christian, the renown of self. If you're going to become a Christian, you can't become a Christian riding on your high horse. Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom as a little child, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God. You've got to humble yourself, not with your pride, not with your arrogance. You've got to humble yourself to come to Jesus Christ. The renown of self. But then also, notice the rebellion of sin. The second reason for this tragedy of an almost Christian is because of the rebellion of sin. John 3, 19 says it bluntly. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And let's be clear, you cannot follow Jesus and hold on to sin at the same time. Jesus made it clear, we studied this a few weeks ago, Luke 13, 3, except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. 
That word repent means that you must turn away from your sin. Do an about face to turning from sin to trusting Christ as Lord. The reality is that the love of sin and the refusal to repent makes many a tragic scene of an almost Christian. I know people personally. I'm no litmus tester to Christian faith. Don't get me wrong. I can't see into the heart of an individual. But I, have, I know full well those that will not throw in with Jesus, that will not make their faith known, that will not come to Christ because they love their alcohol. Or they love this. Or they love that sin. Or they love their lust. Or they love their, their money more than anything else. It is sin oftentimes, the love of sin that makes lives a tragedy. Notice we see light ignored. I want you to recognize something in verses 3, 7 and 8, and 24 through 27. i got to make sure i got my chapters right. Look with me at verse 26 and a a verse, yeah, chapter 26, verse number 3. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. Especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Paul is appealing to, Paul is appealing to Agrippa and says, I know you know what I'm talking about. Look at verse 7 and 8. Unto which promise our, uh, our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be uh, thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Again, he's appealing to what Agrippa knows already. You're the king of the Jews. You know these things. Look at verse 20, 24. And he thus spake for him. Uh, for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. And he said, I am not mad, most Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness for the king. Here he goes. For the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. And for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Notice what's being said here. He is appealing to what Agrippa already knows. He has a foundation. He already knows these things. He's emphasizing what the king knows. You see, Agrippa was privileged to have had some light of the gospel, some truth concerning what God has revealed. But the tragedy of tragedies is he ignores the light that he has. Paul pleads, I know you know this, and Agrippa smugly says, almost, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. To have such light and to ignore it is sin. I quoted earlier John 3, 19. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But listen to the whole verse. John 3, 18 and 19. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their 
deeds are evil. The first sin. The first sin of rebellion is unbelief. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth upon him. It is faith in Jesus. I would, you know, oftentimes so many, so many people's question is this. What about those people that never hear of Jesus? You know, you have people that don't believe in God, Christ. They don't believe on the Lord Jesus. They don't even believe in God. And they'll, they'll take our gospel stories. They'll take our New Testament accounts and say, well, wait a minute, man. What about all the people that never heard of Jesus? What about them? And I believe there, there are sufficient answers for that, but that's not my that's not my, my take today. My take is this. There is more condemnation toward those that know of Him that, than those that do not know of Him. I had rather be an ignorant pagan in the darkest jungles of Africa than to be a cultured American knowing the gospel, be almost saved and turn and go away and meet God in judgment. Jesus said, in one of those cities that Jesus preached in, as he preached to them, he professed that it would be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Why? Because the light of the world itself was standing right before them and they refused him. You say, Brother Ronnie, does that mean there are gradations in hell? Yeah, I believe so. I believe the Bible teaches that, that there are gradations. There are worse places in hell than, and there are if it could be said, better places in hell. But it's all hell. It's all torture. It's all pain for all eternity. But listen, here, the light is ignored. That's what I'm getting to. Agrippa knew these things. Agrippa knew the, the, the Old Testament Scriptures, the Scriptures of his heritage and of his background. He knew all these things. Paul is imploring him, you know this. And he is ignoring their light. Not only... Is light ignored? Why is light ignored? Because lust is indulged. Now we turn our attention to Bernice. You see, Bernice may well be the hinge upon which his tragedy swings on. Bernice was in attendance at this judgment. Bernice came in with Agrippa and was seated next to him, uh, uh, him although she was not his wife. They were shacked up together in a fornicative relationship. Uh, in reality, Bernice was the sister, the biological sister of Agrippa. It was a scene of incest. It was a scene of wicked fornication. Sick and twisted incestuous relationship. Here, Paul is pleading for the soul of Agrippa. He's listening. He's understanding. He's about to agree with Paul. He is almost persuaded and he stops. He stops at the gate of salvation. He stops at the gates of mercy. And he doesn't go into the land altogether. Why? Bernice, by his side. The one sitting right next to him in his heart of hearts, Agrippa, Agrippa understood that if he came to Christ, he would have to turn from his sin with Bernice. Oh, the love of sin keeps so 
many a tragedy of an almost Christian. If it weren't for this one thing I would have to let go. If it weren't for this one pet sin, this one indulgement, I would, I would throw in, I would yield myself completely to Him. The renown of self, the rebellion of sin makes for an, makes for an almost Christian, the tragedy. Last of all, the refusal of salvation. I, I imagine you could probably cut the air with a knife in this scene. I imagine the Holy Spirit was in that room as the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to, to Agrippa and to Festus and Bernice, whoever would listen. And I believe the Holy Spirit's convicting power was, was in that room. Festus' outburst probably granted a momentary distraction from the heart dealings with from the Holy Spirit's heart dealings with Agrippa, but quickly Paul takes the gospel directly to the king, and in a moment, salvation is refused. Almost thou well, I, I can just see a nervous laugh trying to laugh it off. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, Paul. Notice he was given the most gracious opportunity. Look at verse number 26 in chapter 26. For the king knoweth of these things. Remember Paul's appealing to what the king knows. Before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things were hidden from him. For these things were not done in a corner. What is he talking about? I believe he's referring back to verse 23 when he said Christ should suffer and should be the first to rise from the dead and should show light to the people of the Gentiles. The apostle Paul is saying that these things weren't done in a corner. Now, I, I think what he was referring to, again, is the cross of Jesus. This thing was not done in a corner. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about what Jesus did on the cross. No doubt Agrippa was alive during the time of Christ, this being removed probably about 20, 20 to 25 years. He may have been a young boy. He may have been a, a teenager at the time. But this was not hidden from him. What Paul did that day was to take Agrippa on an imaginary tour of Calvary's cross. I think Paul took Agrippa and led him up Calvary's hill. You know, we refer to Mount Calvary or Calvary as a mountain, but really it's a, it's a hill of some sort. Uh, you know, there, when you get to Israel, there are different sites that people propose are the places where Jesus was crucified. There is the Catholic site with a church built over the top of it. We visited it, but many believe that the actual crucifixion took place further out from the city walls, and it's known as the Garden Tomb. And it's outside the city walls. We had the pleasure of, of visiting that, but as they took us to one we sat into like a pavilion that's open to one side and that opening showed us basically this rocky crevice of a hill maybe about 30 feet in the air from its bottom to its top. We stood about midways, you know, kind of a, on a raised platform and we could look over there in that rocky crevice and they would point to that and say, that we believe that to be Golgotha and the stone on the side it would indicate that it almost looked like a place of a skull or a skull, but it was a higher hill. But the reality is, is that on the other side, 
where Jesus would have been crucified and a steep drop behind him. He would have been facing that way towards Jerusalem and they would have been nearly at at ground level with him. The people around the cross would have would have would have kind of been able to spit in his face and to, and to deride him from from just feet below him. You know, uh, they tell us that he was uh, crucified not in a big place geographically. It's not high on elevation, but it may not have been high geographically, but historically and theologically and spiritually, the cross of Calvary is the highest hill of humanity. Jesus Christ on the cross. There, the, the lifted up Savior before the... Uh, Jesus was lifted up before the eyes of cruel men. And why was He on that cross? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for us. There before the eyes of Agrippa, the gates of salvation were swung open wide. God's grace was superabounding to warn him, no matter how wicked he had been, no matter how prideful he had lived, no matter how often he had refused the light of the gospel, uh, the light that he knew, God's grace was sufficient to save Agrippa. There was room at the cross for Agrippa. There was place for him. He had given him the most gracious opportunity. And any time a lost person hears the gospel of our Lord Jesus, it is a gracious opportunity. He was given a gracious opportunity, but he had taken the most grievous option. But tragedy of tragedies, no matter how wide the gates of God's grace are open, it is absolutely of none effect if the sinner does not walk through them. Almost thou persuadest me. Almost. The reality of the almost Christian is that they are altogether not a Christian. There's no such thing as a almost Christian. There is a lost sinner or there is a Christian. There's not an almost Christian. That's why it's a tragedy. A baseball team that almost wins the pennant loses. A runner that almost hits the tape loses. The marksman that almost hits the bullseye misses it. A ship that almost makes it into the harbor perishes in the storm. Almost is to miss it. And if you're almost and not altogether a Christian, that means that your sins are not forgiven. That means that the judgment of God abideth upon you. That means that there is nothing but a fiery hell of judgment that awaits you upon the crossing of the Jordan River of death. Being an almost Christian is the difference between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. Oh, the tragedy! The tragedy! Of being so close, knocking on the gate, the doors of heaven. And to be turned away. And not be altogether a Christian. In close, many years ago, there was a man by the name of William Hyatt. He was a 62-year-old miner. And he, and they found him, found this man, dead in the Mojave Desert with his hands and his face buried in the sand seeking what moisture he could find. His car had broken down in the desert. And he had walked 22 miles through the Mojave Desert until he just finally collapsed and died. He crawled on his hands and feet 
the last two miles and he died in the sand. Just over the hill, a half a mile away, was Saratoga Spring that could have saved him. He was almost there, and yet he died lost. Thank God, salvation is not a survival. Salvation is not dictated by my own strength and whether I can walk far enough, whether I can last long enough in this life. Salvation is to repent, change, change direction. It is not a work, it is faith to change direction and believe on Jesus. I believe that if, if Agrippa would have put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ in that moment, I believe that God would have worked out the whole thing with Bernice. I believe, I believe that years down the road, Agrippa would have said, it has been worth every mile to put my faith and trust in Jesus. But the, the reality is, is we know nothing of what happened that day. And for all, for all we know, that's the last time we ever read of Agrippa on the pages of the New Testament. And for all we know that Agrippa became a tragedy of an almost Christian. In other words, he became the tragedy of a lost sinner going out in eternity without Jesus Christ. Don't be a tragedy. If you're here this morning without the Lord Jesus, believe on Him. Turn it about face. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Place it in His hands. Turn your life to Him. Make Him Lord and Savior of your life. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Tragedy of an almost Christian. It'd be sad to go into eternity from the pews of Faith Community Church and not know the Lord Jesus Christ and split hell wide open. What a tragedy. Not that you sat under my preaching. No, that's not it at all. But that you sat under the gospel presentation. The, the doors swing open wide every Sunday here. As I do my best to try to articulate and share the meaning of the gospel, the, the method of the gospel, the moment of the gospel, when the go doors are swung open every Sunday and to say no, and to go on into eternity without Christ as Savior, it is the tragedy of all tragedies. Don't be a tragedy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for your gospel. I thank you for the moment that that I repented, that I put my faith and trust in Jesus, confronted with the same gospel that Agrippa heard, by the same Holy Spirit dealing with my heart, I put my trust in you. God, you changed my life. Have I been perfect? No, I have failed you more times than I like to admit. But Father, I became your child that day. You changed my heart. You birthed me into a family. And I'm forever grateful for that. Father, I pray you would do heart work among us today as we listen to your word, as we receive it. We pray that folks would come to know you in saving faith. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Page number 81, just as I am. One verse, maybe two. You respond. If God spoke to your heart, you respond to the gospel call. Come to faith in Jesus.